Dearest listeners, I hope that you're enjoying the Baha'i Blogcast. It has been such a treat and a delight to do these in conjunction with Baha'iBlog.net and the great team over there. What a delight it's been getting to know these exceptional spiritual minds, Baha'i and otherwise, over the years. And I wanted to say that if you enjoy this podcast, you might enjoy a new podcast that has just been released that I'm a part of called Metaphysical Milkshake. It's available wherever fine podcasts can be downloaded, and it's with my kind of intellectual partner in crime, Dr. Reza Aslan, the great author, firebrand, religious studies scholar. He's an exceptionally brilliant human being, and we engage in some uplifting and elevated discussions with some of the world's greatest thinkers and writers, people like Malcolm Gladwell and National Book Award winners like Elizabeth Colbert, Krista Tippett, Adam Grant, so many other amazing celebrities and authors talking about life's biggest questions. What is it that make us a human being? What uplifts us? What excites us? Why are we here? Do we have free will? Is there a God? What happens after we die? From science to philosophy to psychology to spirituality, we engage in all of the big questions And I hope that you will subscribe, like, follow, download, rate, review, whatever it is you do with podcasts. Metaphysical Milkshake with Rain and Reza, available wherever fine podcasts are sold. Thank you. Now to the episode. Hello, and welcome to Baha'i Blogcast with me, your host, Rain Wilson. This is where I interview members of the Baha'i faith and other friends from all over the world about their hearts and minds and souls, their spiritual journeys, what they're interested in, and what makes them tick. Enjoy. Hello, Baha'i blogcasters. It is me, Rain, but you probably knew that. Welcome aboard. Extremely thrilled for tonight's interview. Angelina Dilberto Allen. Is it Dilberto or Diliberto? Diliberto. 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 Is that an Italian well, or, it, or Spanish? Well, actually, it's Diliberto. Diliberto. Diliberto is fine. Diliberto. Diliberto. Okay, great. <laughs> so, folks, this is a very special year for us Baha'is. It marks the 100th anniversary of the passing of Abdul Baha. And so we've focused uh, a bunch of episodes that we'll be producing over the next five to six months, on the wonderful life of Abdu'l-Bahá. And for those of you who don't know, Abdu'l-Bahá was the eldest son of Baha'u'llah, whose name means the glory of God. And Baha'u'llah was the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith. Abdu'l-Bahá, his eldest son, was really renowned as a champion of social justice. He was an ambassador for international peace and for Baha'is everywhere. Abdu'l-Bahá means servant of Baha or servant of glory, Uh, He was known as the kind of the perfect exemplar of the teachings of his father. And many Baha'is refer to him as the master. He preferred to be called Abdu'l-Bahá, servant of Baha. So we're having on the Baha'i blogcast a lot of great storytellers about Abdu'l-Bahá, authors about Abdu'l-Bahá, academicians that know stories about Abdu'l-Bahá, just general old people who maybe met Abdu'l-Bahá. No, that's impossible. I don't think there's any Baha'is over 
a hundred and something that have met Abdul Baha. But nonetheless, a lot of great guests coming up in the in the coming months. And Angelina Deliberto Allen is here with us today. Welcome, Angelina. Thank you. Uh, so nice to have you here. So I I really know kind of next to nothing about you. I have your book uh, sitting on my shelf, and I, all truth be told, I haven't cracked it yet. I'm so sorry. I'm a terrible <laughs> podcast host. I should have read it. Uh, what's it called? It's about it's about John Bosch. What what is what do you what is it called? I have it here somewhere. It's uh, John Bosch in the Vanguard of Heroes, Martyrs, and Saints. Wow. John but Bo- remember, Mark Twain was the one who said that a classic is something that everyone wants to have read but hasn't. So <laughs> the classic. We'll call, cla- we'll call it a classic. That then it it is shot to the top of the ranks of the classics. There you go. <laughs> so and she also has another book coming out very soon. We'll get into that later. But I know very little about you, and I would just love to hear kind of your a little bit about your life and and growing up and how you kind of became a Baha'i and what life was like for you in those in those formative years. Hmm. Well, I suppose it relates to the topic we're talking about, about the centenary of the passing of Abdu'l-Bahá, because my family became Baha'is. Well, actually, I think every Western believer or every believer living in the United States can trace their becoming a Baha'i back to Abdu'l-Bahá coming to America. That someone Mm. taught your father who taught your father who taught his father, his father, all the way back to Abdu'l-Bahá. So in our case... When Abdu'l-Bahá came to California, my great-great-grandmother was present at one of those meetings. Wow. We didn't know that at the time. In fact, What was her name? Her name was Mary Bones. Okay. But later in the 60s, my dad had, you know, he he didn't know about the Baha'i faith. And even though we learned later that his great-grandmother was a Baha'i and... Um, a friend of his who was a, a well-known actor, Lloyd Haynes, who was the lead in Room 222, mm. you know, was my dad's good friend and one day said to him, I'd really like you to read this book and tell me what you think of it. And the book that he gave to my dad was God Passes By by Shoghi Effendi. Now, for those That's of you That's a tough one. Oh, know, my goodness. <laughs> yeah, God Passes By is a review of the of 100 years of the Baha'i, of the first 100 years of the history of the Baha'i faith. Hmm. So my dad read that book, and um, that began my this journey for my parents. They started going to firesides in Los Angeles and Blanche Grant's, uh, Blanche Grant and Walter Grant's house, and... Joni Bolkin were fi- teaching at the firesides, and Lloyd just really stuck by my dad and really took him under his wing and took him to everything. And then my parents, when they became Baha'is, um, immediately wanted to do something great for the faith, and so they decided to do international teaching or what we call pioneering. Okay. So they, we all packed up and moved in 1968 to Argentina. For international teaching and wow, how old were you? I was eight. So okay. while we were there, my grandmother went through her great grandmother's Bible and uh, found uh, newspaper cutouts of photographs of Abdul Baha and his visit in California, and she had underlined in her Bible all of the passages uh, foretelling the coming of 
of the glory of God. And so my grandmother wrote to my dad and said, see, this is what you've always been. You've always been a Baha'i. Mm. And so we, we really make that connection in two ways, through Lloyd, but also we now know that our connection to the faith goes all the way back to uh, my great-great-grandmother. That's fantastic. So when did they become a Baha'i? How old were you? So when when Lloyd taught us uh, about the Baha'i faith, that was 1967, 68, and that was the year we also left for Argentina. Wow. Okay. So do you do you remember life in your family pre Baha'i and post Baha'i? Mm-hmm. Was there was there a big change? No, because as my my father's mother told him, this is what the way you've always been raised. This is what you've been raised with. Mm. It was we just didn't know that it was called that because when Abdu'l-Bah came to America, that so many people came to hear him, and so many people identified with the teachings, but there wasn't a formalized way of enrolling believers. And so there were people who considered themselves followers of Abdu'l-Bahá, sure. but may not have been. They didn't enrolled. register or sign a card or something so like my, that. So my great great grandmother, Mary Bones, was one of those persons. And mm. so her daughter, then her daughter, just never formalized their, their membership in the Baha'i faith until my dad did and told them about the Baha'i faith. And they said, well, this is what you've already been. Yeah. So my dad formalized it. And then, my, and then his mom, you know, signed her card and officially became a, a believer, but yeah. she, you know, always said that she was. So you were in Argentina as a child, and mm-hmm. I know from your biography, although I don't know any of the stories around it, that you have pioneered and lived in various countries, including mm-hmm. Swaziland, Botswana, mm-hmm. and Zimbabwe. And by the way, Swaziland, I just learned, changed their name to Eswatini. I had no idea. Eswatini. Yes. So can you tell us, uh, I haven't had that many pioneers on the show. So hmm. what what is the Baha'i concept, even though we have a mostly Baha'i listening audience, what is the Baha'i concept of pioneering and how did you experience it? And can you tell us a little bit about those adventures around the globe? Well, when we went to Argentina in 1968, it was, I mean, speaking of centenaries, it was the 100th anniversary of Baha'u'llah's arrival in the Holy Land. Mm. So he arrived in Akka from, you know, in his exile in 1868. And so it was a year like this one where there was this great impetus uh, worldwide to uh, encourage Baha'is to go to another country where Mm -hmm. there were not Baha'is and establish the Baha'i faith there. Mm. So when we went to Argentina, we were at that time a family of five kids. We're now a family of seven. I have two more brothers and sisters, but we were a family of five. And so we went to the, we were sent to the Southern Andes, the Patagonia region of Argentina, where the Adaucanian Indian tribe lived and our so that's great that was remote argentina not downtown buenos aires with all the coffee shops no we were no (laughs) and our mission was to my well really my parents mission we were just kids was to reach the adalcanians and so my dad asked one of the um real estate he we we had to rent a, a cabin and he asked the man that we rented it from if he knew of any 
Araucanians who lived across the lake. There was a large, largest lake in South America called Lake Lago Nahuel Huapi. So he said, yeah, if you go over to the this place called the Centro Atomico, there's a man who works there who is a member of the Araucanian tribe. Hmm. My dad went, drove there, got to the gate, asked about him. They said, no, he's just gotten on that bus. My dad and Eugenio Aragon, another a youth who was a Baha'i teacher, chased after the bus. The bus made its first stop. My dad told Eugenio, get out and go get that guy off that bus. They got onto the bus, asked for Domingo Cayeque, and they asked if he was on the bus. He said, yes, I'm here. He stood up. He gets off the bus, gets in my dad's car, and my dad drives him to our house. And <laughs> Domingo sits in so, our living room. So it's room kind of a the, kidnapping, essentially. The, the five of us kids are all sitting and watching as my dad explains to him the teachings of Baha'u'llah. And then there's this silence and... My dad says, is there anything that you want to know more or any other questions that you have? Of course, all this is in Spanish. And Domingo pauses. I mean, I'll just never forget it because I was about eight. And he waits in silence. And then he says, how can I bring this to all of my people? Oh, wow. And so we spent the rest of our time there uh, teaching his people. Hmm. And uh, becoming part of their lives, even going one one time there was a funeral where they lay the body out on the table and they had my mother give uh, the like the the speech for Hmm. for this deceased member of this tribe. So that's how close we got with this tribe. And um, so that that was our experience. The, The Africa experience was I. And married to uh, Andy Allen, who is the son of Knights of Baha'u'llah to Swaziland or Eswatini. Mm-hmm. And so when I married, Andy and I pioneered to Southern Africa, where his grandparents had had. Is that gone a, is as, that a Dwight Allen connection or? Yeah, Dwight is Andy's uncle. Oh, oh, okay, great. Okay, mm-hmm. wow, wonderful. Yeah, great. So, what what does a Baha'i do when they're uh, pioneering? What does that look well, like? You work a job or you right. just go around like telling people yeah. about the Baha'i faith yeah. with your eyes <laughs> spinning like pinwheels and just offering people cookies or do you do service projects, all of the above? <laughs> well, we know that international teachers for the faith or pioneers, they go uh, by their own uh, volition and are by their own means. So there's no institutional subsidizing of uh of pioneers, at least in those days. Although when we went to Argentina, uh, my dad was an elementary school teacher and had five children. And Lloyd Haynes was a very successful actor and said to my dad, well, you're going where I can't go. So I'll subsidize you. So Lloyd Mm. Haynes subsidized our, our work. In fact, what's so neat about Lloyd Haynes, just to get back to him for just a minute is that, um, my dad always says to us that, you know, Abdul Baha is our spiritual father. But really, if you track it, you, know, you, you everyone can track that. When Louis Gregory went travel teaching throughout the South, he one of the places he went was a factory where Lloyd Haynes's dad worked, and he gathered all the factory workers together and delivered the message of Baha'u'llah to them. Those who became Baha'is then were deepened and began to become teachers themselves. So Lloyd Haynes's father was one of those persons. 
And then Lloyd Haynes moves to from Indiana to Los Angeles and teaches my dad, who then mm. goes travel teaching to Argentina and Lloyd pays for it. So it, it's just a wonderful, uh, wonderful connection that all this, you know, you know, American Italian family join, joins the faith and uh, we're subsidized by an African-American Baha'i. Oh, that's fantastic. So wow. It's how it should work. It's a wonderful, Well, I didn't even know that Lord, Lloyd Haynes, who I used to watch when I was a tiny kid, and I love that show, Room 222, uh, I didn't know he was bi. So mm-hmm. learn something new every day. Yeah. Very, very deepened and uh, devoted. Wow. Beautiful. Yeah. And so what did you do in Africa? Like, uh, just take me through, like, oh, life, okay. so, life as so, a pioneer. So we had to um, find our own means. My husband was uh, doing graduate work at Stanford University in appropriate technology where you uh, teach people how to burn cow manure and make methane mm. gas, how to uh, build a oxen-driven uh, pump to generate water in the Kalahari. So we we were in places like that where my husband could continue his research for his uh, master's degree in appropriate technology at Stanford. And then my, my money, my residual money coming in from the development commercial that my twin sister okay, and now I did. Okay, now slow, slow paid, down. Here we go. Paid for all if, that. There, <laughs> if this was like, if we had sound effects, that would be the record scratch kind of. Um, I'd, it all I'd heard a rumor about this. You and your twin were double mint Act, how old were you? You were double mint. So we were in we were in let's see eleventh grade. They were looking for twins for a commercial. They were filming North Dallas Forty that football movie. It was a oh, it's a classic. They were filming that at my high school, and the uh, the the production team was uh, told they were still looking for twins that, uh, for the next commercial that they were would be filming and some friends of ours were playing basketball and said oh yeah we know some twins angie and margie Deliberto. they gave them our number they called our house i was i worked at a restaurant margie worked at a clothing store and my mom answered the phone and says sorry my my girls have a job <laughs> and hung up and so i mean well she didn't hang up without getting their number so when we got back from work my mom said well these people called about you guys being in a development commercial but i already told them you have a job <laughs> And, um, so my dad says, well, I'll drive them down and see what it's about. And turned out it was for real. And, um, it was BBDNO, uh, company. So my dad checked it out and made sure it was legitimate and it was. So we did, uh, you know, television commercials for them for, let's see, I think it was almost three years that, and they ran nationally. So the residuals are enough for us to, um, and this gets us back to Abdu'l-Baha is, my because Wait, on, only my dad, you, I feel like, could draw a line between a double mint gum commercial <laughs> and, and Abdul Baha. I will right so. now. Here we go. So, my dad, like I said, he was an elementary school teacher, and my mom did not work, and there were five of us kids, and so no one in my family had gone on pilgrimage to Haifa. So, it was that would just have been an outrageous luxury. So, when we started getting all this residual money, my dad said, it would be great if the two of you become the first people in our family to go on a pilgrimage Mm. to Haifa. So in 1978, my sister and I were 17 17 years old and uh, made our first pilgrimage to 
the shrine of the Bab in yeah. Haifa and the shrine of Baha'u'llah across the bay in in Bachi. Yeah. So, and my dad always said, you know, if you hadn't done that doublement commercial, you you we wouldn't have been able at that time yeah. at least to afford to have you go wow, on pilgrimage. Then after that, we went on a travel teaching trip to Chile, my twin sister and I. And then from there, we then both got married. Margie married Gary Bolkin, who I know you've mm-hmm. worked with. And then Andy and I married, and Andy and I went to Africa, and I had all this residual money, so we could afford it. So Baha'is, when they pioneer, they, they have to figure out a way to, to assimilate into the culture they're going yeah. to and not be a saturation on that mm. culture but to be a contributor mm-hmm. to it. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're fa- you have a rich family history of uh, and Baha'i legacy, but mm-hmm. as we all know, we follow this concept of the individual investigation of truth. We find the truth for ourselves. Mm-hmm. What? Why are you a Baha'i? What, what drew you specifically to the faith, your, your family aside? How has it helped guide your life or given you vision, meaning, purpose. What is your deepest soul response to being a Baha'i? Um, you know, I've certainly thought about that because I've been in, in discussions with people who either, you know, found the faith as an adult or were born into the faith. And it's always interesting for me to listen to different people's responses. And every time I hear someone's response about, well, I, I grew up as a Baha'i, but I really became a Baha'i, you know, on this day. And I always would listen thinking, you know, I, I don't feel that way. I've, I've never felt that I was not a Baha'i. Mm-hmm. And I mean that sincerely. Yeah. I never had that moment where I felt like this is my identity. It, it is my identity. It's like, it would be like for me saying, Oh my gosh, I realize my name is Angie. It's my identity. I've always felt th- that I was a Baha'i. Mm. No, that's that's fair. Fair enough. And how would you define that identity? What does a Baha'i identity mean? Everything I think about is oriented around the teachings of the Baha'i faith. It, it, there, there's not a, a, a thinking in my mind that is outside of the teachings of the Baha'i faith. Mm. I remember when I when I had this dream, I, I, I had a hard time when I was a teenager, um, really feeling close to Baha'u'llah as a, like, like imagining Baha'u'llah and reading Baha'u'llah's writings. And, um, and I, I always felt this very close connection with the writings of Abdu'l-Baha'u'llah. Mm. And then when I was in high school, I started reading the, the writings of Shoghi Effendi, which are a completely different style than... Baha'u'llah's writings are one style, Abdu'l-Baha's are another, and of course Shoghi Effendi's are a whole different style. And I, I had the same feeling about Shoghi Effendi, where I felt like I couldn't, I couldn't feel this personal feeling with Shoghi Effendi. I just felt it with Abdu'l-Baha. So while we were teaching internationally in Southern Africa... I had a dream that I was in the Baha'i Center in Johannesburg. Mm. And in that dream, I was in the library. And suddenly, like dreams are, in my dream, on one side of me is William Sears, who many of us know and understand that he is a hand of the cause of God, a very um, inspirational teacher of Mm. the faith, and he did a lot of very important work 
in being one of the first to teach Africans the Baha'i faith in Southern mm. Africa. And then the other person in the room was Shoghi Effendi. And I always carried a camera around my, <laughs> like those 120 yeah. cameras around my neck. So Shoghi Effendi then says to me, can I have your camera? And I, I take it off and I hand it to him. And he says, let me take a picture of you and Bill. And we pose for a picture <laughs> in my dream, pose for a picture. Then next, the camera is, is given back to me, and I take a picture of Shoghi Effendi and Bill Sears. Mm. And then Shoghi Effendi hands the camera to Bill Sears, and Shoghi Effendi puts his arm around me and says to Bill, take a picture of the two of us. And he took the picture mm. of us. And when I woke up in my dream, I it, it was fixed for me. My my feeling of not feeling this connection with Shoghi Effendi was mm. healed because of that wow, dream. Wow, that's beautiful. I've never heard of so I, that's the best way I can explain, like that these moments, you know, like how I identify yeah. as by faith is I I identify with the writings mm -hmm. of the by yeah. faith. Yeah, that's great. That's great. I I don't normally do this, but you know, since I'm at you know since I'm asking you that question, I my response to that question for me because I've been thinking about this a little more recently. I gave a couple talks recently on literally like why am I a Baha'i, which I think is a really important conversation to have. And I, I realized for myself, like, I've always suffered from a tremendous amount of anxiety. And it's easy for me to get lost and off track. And there is this, there was something, a bell really went off. Now, I've been a Baha'i long before I was doing the Ruhi books. Well, not long before, but I'd come back to the Baha'i faith a few years before I was doing the Ruhi books. But when I did book five on the youth, and it was talking about the twofold, you know, moral purpose, you know, a really a, a light went off for me, and and it just there, I need things to be really like meat and potatoes. Like I can't get like really airy fairy. It's got to be like super practical, and it was just like, oh yeah, that sums it up because mm -hmm. my faith works on two paths. One is my personal connection with the divine, working on my spiritual virtues, um, connecting to nature, finding peace and serenity, uh, stillness inside of me, you know, uh, nurturing a light in my heart. I'm not successful at this, by the way, FYI listeners, but it gives me something to work on. And then also my faith gives me a roadmap for trying to make the world a better place. There's lots of ways to try and make the world a better place. You can be in Greenpeace, or you can join a political party, or you can clean up the roads, or you can volunteer at a library. And There's tons of ways, but this Baha'i path of you know helping usher forth an ever-advancing civilization really made a lot of sense to me. So I kind of need, for all of my energy and ideas, I need a path, I need a track. And for me, that twofold moral purpose really t encapsulates why it works for me. Because I think some people have faith purely for, you know, an external reason and serving others or being a part of their church or teaching people. And some people have faith and they never talk about it. It's completely private in their heart and it's kind of nurturing their heart center. But rarely in the contemporary religious conversation is there kind of a melding of those two ideas. So mm -hmm. I've been thinking a lot about that recently. Anyway, I just 
felt struck to share well, that. It's because it's about about certitude. You know, I asked your dear old dad Uh-oh. about how he became yeah. a Baha'i. I was at convention, and so I asked him. I, I And he was busy talking to my father-in-law, Ken Allen, and they were chattering away, and I interrupted and said, I, how did you become a Baha'i? And he said, and now this may be romanticized or wrong. I may be remembering it wrong, but I like I like the story the way I'm okay. going to tell it. And by <laughs> the way, folks listening, my father, Robert Wilson, was became a Baha'i in 1963, and he passed away uh, recently this last August, And uh, but he was a very wonderful Baha'i speaker and a, and a lovely, generous man. Anyways, continue. Oh, gosh, was he ever. And he so he, it, he says... It was a dark and rainy night. I was on my way from, I think he said, the library in Seattle, on my way home, when out of the darkness in the rain appeared a hooded man who tore a page out of a book and handed it to me and said, this is the true word of God. And then he walked away. And he said, I was left with this piece of paper that he, real, he figured out was from a Baha'i prayer book. <laughs> and he said, I needed to find out about what this was because this person said it with such certainty. Mm. Mm. There was certitude in his expression. This is the true word of God. And he handed it to me. I, I had to know if if that kind of certitude was was right. Mm. So we're, we're really talking about about certitude, mm. you know. Yeah, I think mm. I, you know what is what's your moment of of certitude? Mm. The House of Justice has said about this year that we're in that this this year of remembering the passing of Abdul Baha brings us to this and the word three they use three words that that I think might have to do with this moment of certitude is this infinitely poignant moment of the passing of Abdul Baha. This infinitely poignant moment. And I you know you think about what that word poignant means and it's it's this deeply affecting moment. And that for us, I mean, because, you know, I think it's good for us to ask ourselves, well, so why are you Baha'i so, what, what is, what's so big about this passing of Abdu'l Baha mm. to mm. you guys? And I think that's a really good question to ask ourselves is if we were to tell someone, well, today is uh, November 28th, uh, 2021, and 100 years ago today, Abdu'l Baha passed away. And, and, and then we say to us in our mind, we go, how do I express to my friend that this is this infinitely poignant moment? And I think maybe part of that is because for us Baha'is, it's a moment of certitude. Hmm. We know that Abdul Baha has all these titles that, that, that we can list on you know, lengthy pages, the center of the covenant, the stainless mirror of his light, the perfect exemplar of his teachings, the unerring interpreter of his word. Shoghi Effendi says, all these titles find their truest expression in, and now these are the words Shoghi Effendi uses, all these titles of Abdu'l-Baha 
find their truest expression in the magic name, Abdu'l-Baha. Wow, the magic name. Those are the words Shoghi Effendi uses. He says, the magic name, Abdu'l-Baha. Mm, mm, mm. It, and it does mean something to all of us. And, and even on the, the ears of our hearers, it, it, it means something. Mm. So it, it, remember, we're not only commemorating the passing of Abdu'l-Baha, but we're also commemorating in January the public reading of his will. Mm. And the will and testament of Abdu'l-Baha is the blueprint for this whole idea that we call the Baha'i faith. I mean, we can say the world order of Baha'u'llah, the unfoldment of divine civilization, or if you just want to say it in plain terms, this whole idea that we tell people when we say the Baha'i faith, the blueprint for it is the will and testament of Abdu'l-Baha. And in January of, two, of 19, uh, rather 2022, there'll be a, a gathering in the Holy Land to commemorate the public reading of his will. Now, John and Louise Bosch, Grace and Florian Krug, Joanna Hauf, and Curtis Kelsey were the six Western believers present at the passing of Abdu'l-Baha and at the reading of his will. They were there at, upon both occasions. And so to, to hear or to, to learn about their experiences puts us there. You know, so many of us, you know, wish we could go to the Holy Land in November, but we can't. And the best we can do is to, is to read about it. And speaking of reading about it, this seems to be very well covered in your book, John Bosch, In the Vanguard of Angels and Saints and Martyrs. Right, but in the book that's coming out, so can I talk about the book that's coming out? Sure, whatever order you'd like. Okay, so the the book that's coming out is, well, I, I, I know that our listeners can't see it, but here's the, here's the cover. Oh, you got it, a cover done, When the Moon Set Over Haifa. Right, and the, on the cover is the doorway of the house of Abdu'l-Bahá, because, of course, it was in his house that he passed away. Hmm. And... So the book covers the, uh, this may be a little blasphemous to say it this way, but have you seen the movie Roshimon by Akira Kurosawa? Sure. Roshimon, Classic. of course, tells an event. It's Nick Nolte, the, the, the football the... team. And, oh, wait, no, I'm getting that <laughs> no, mixed no, up. No, no, no. Okay. No. <laughs> um, tells, it tells the, uh, it tells of an event through the point of view of various individuals. Mm-hmm. Roshimon does. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, this book is similar in that way. So it tells of the passing of Abdu'l-Baha from the point of view of six different people. Mm. John Bosch and uh, Louise Bosch were uh, staying at the pilgrim house across the street. When Abdu'l-Baha passed, someone came knocking on the door, and John and Louise came rushing across the street into the room of Abdu'l-Baha. So they were there right at his passing. Mm. And John Bosch wrote copious notes about his experience, and so all those notes are in this book. And he 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 writes about how, you know, there are those moments when we are we are suddenly inspired to say something, and we don't know what it is that 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 causes us to to burst 
with that thing we want to say. But there was this moment in the room when everything is silent and there's this recognition that Abdu'l-Bahá has passed away. And John Bosch says that he, he approached the, the body of Abdu'l-Bahá and touched his hand and it was warm. And then he called out that magic name. Oh, Abdu'l-Bahá, in the silence of the room. And the wife of Abdu'l-Bahá and the sister of Abdu'l-Bahá both said that how wonderful it was that someone called out his name right at his passing. Louise talks about how she makes reference to that. We think the reference is biblical, but it's not. It comes from this reference that I'm about to give you comes from um, Alexander Pope's essay on criticism. Alexander Pope was an 18th century English writer. And Alexander Pope says that line, um, fools rush in where angels fear to tread. And Louise describes the feeling of being in that room where Abdu'l-Bahá is is on his bed, he's passed away, and she says, we felt like we were those fools who had rushed in where angels feared to tread, because had it been any other circumstance, had had Abdu'l-Bahá's passing been um, foreseen, had these six Western believers wouldn't be in the room. Mm, mm. So she said, we felt like in any other circumstance, we wouldn't be in there, but we were those fools who rushed in. And now we're, we're present at this, this unique moment mm. in religious history. Mm. Florian Krug was another person who was present. And his story is just wonderful because he was a Mensur fighter. A Mensur fighter is those guys from Europe who fight a, in a measurement. They do a sword fight in a measurement, measured distance from one another. Mm-hmm. And the intention is to get the, you know, the scar on your face. Those, those guys. I have scars. never heard of this in my life. That's crazy. Oh. Really? Yeah. So there's Mensur fighting is where you sword fight about, you know, it's a one yeah. case away but from You could other. lose an eye. Someone's going to get their eye poked out. And the intention is not to um, to move. The intention is to get a smite on your face because you're showing that you are singular of purpose, that you have... Wow. Your, your mindset and that you are, you know, you can't be, your mind can't be changed about anything. And so what's wonderful about Florian Krug is that when, <laughs> when Abdu'l-Bahá came to America, his wife, um, Grace Krug, had Abdu'l-Bahá and had invited him to come and speak at their home. And he said, well, now I can get my, my hands on the ringleader of this bunch. And he, you know, was ready to throw Abdu'l-Bahá out of the house. And when he, Abdu'l-Bahá arrived and approached Dr. Krug, Dr. Krug just just completely melted and it was like he had been, you know, just completely undone by a better sword fighter. Ah. And so in and in 1920 Florian and Grace Krug decided to move to Haifa so that he could be a physician for the family of Abdu'l-Bahá and that's what took them to Haifa at that time. Oh wow. So when Abdu'l-Bahá died it was Florian Krug who gave the, you know, the official um, statement of death mm. and um, was the one who closed his, closed his eyes. Um, Abdu'l-Bahá had given the Krugs hit his own room. So Abdu'l-Bahá built a little room above the garage that was the an annex. It was a room for himself. 
And when the Krugs arrived, he gave the Krugs his room and Abdu'l-Bahá went to the bedroom downstairs. So when you go into the house of Abdu'l-Bahá, the room to the right is the room where Abdu'l-Bahá passed away. Mm, Okay. But Abdu'l-Bahá normally slept in the room upstairs, but Mm. he gave that room to the Krugs, slept in the room downstairs. So that put Dr. Krug at, you know, what, 30-second run from the upstairs room down to the downstairs room when he was called to the bedside. The other person present at the passing was Joanna Hauf, and she was a 27-year-old from Germany. And her reading about her account is really touching because she's very youthful Mm. and very naive and innocent in the way that she describes what she sees happening. Um, in, in the passing and, of course, in the carrying of the master's body up Mount Carmel. But I think that the most touching, um, well, it can't be the most touching, but a, a very poignant moment mm-hmm. in learning about these six Western believers is Curtis Kelsey. So Abdu'l-Bahá um, had this design. He had this this plan um, that... In the future, there would be uh, mm. lights that would unite Akka and Haifa, and that it would just be this arc of illumination, and that spotlights would be on either side of Mount Carmel, and there would be lights from the Shrine of the Bab and lights from the Shrine of Baha'u'llah reaching across the Bay of Haifa. Abdu'l-Bahá's, one of his missions in life was to build a tomb for the remains of the Bab. Mm. And it, later, Shoghi Effendi built the superstructure, as we know. But at the time, right before Abdu'l-Bahá's passing, he passed away in November. In October, a month before his passing, he had Curtis Kelsey come to the Holy Land. Curtis Kelsey was an, a home electrician from New York mm-hmm. <laughs> who came to the Holy Land to install electricity in the Shrine of the Bab and in the Shrine of Baha'u'llah. There was no electricity anywhere in Haifa. Mm. It was the first time electricity had been installed. And Abdu'l-Bahá passed away before the the lights came on. Um, In April of 1922, the the lights going up the pathway to the Shrine of the Bab were lighted for the first Mm. time. And that was Curtis Kelsey. Oh, wow. So this book tells the story of these six Western believers who they were, what brought them to Haifa, what was their role that they played while they were there at the passing, and then what did they do with their life afterward? Wow, that's that's fantastic. Yeah. And and obviously, for those who don't know, Abdu'l-Bahá's passing did not just send reverberations throughout the Baha'i community, but the entire area and the cities of Akka and Haifa were tens of thousands of people came to his funeral, did they not? I mean, it had an incredible Mm -hmm. impact and kind of showed his Mm -hmm. stature in the area. Can you tell us a little about that? Yes. I'll tell you about that, but preface it with, when Abdu'l-Bahá came to America in 1912, John Bosch went to New York to meet him. And he entered his hotel room with a pocket full of questions that he was going to ask him. And Abdu'l-Bahá answered all of his questions before those questions came out of his pocket. (laughs) And and. And John Bosch, you know, says that he he walked in and said, you know, I've traveled 3,000 miles to see you. And Abdu'l-Bahá says to him, oh, I've traveled 8,000 miles to see you. (laughs) And uh, but one of the touching events that happened was 
Abdu'l-Bahá was staying in the hotel in Sonia, and they, there was this plan to take Abdu'l-Bahá throughout the city of New York and have a sightseeing tour. When at the carriages or the cars come up to 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 load up Abdu'l-Bahá's entourage into these cars, Abdu'l-Bahá gets into the car and then reaches his hand out to the sidewalk and grabs John Bosch's hand and pulls him mm. into the car. And off they go for this grand tour of New York. But what happens is Abdu'l-Bahá puts his arms around John Bosch's waist and puts his head on John Bosch's left mm. shoulder and falls asleep. <laughs> And has a nap. Could you imagine? So, I'm sorry. Could you imagine? <laughs> imagine it. So later, in 1921, when John Bosch is, is that present at the passing, he was asked by the family of Abdu'l-Bahá to help to lift the body of Abdu'l-Bahá. Now, this, of course, deserves some um, just some a pause i mean some reflective pause because we're talking about the blessed body of abdu'l-bahá which was wrapped in white silk and there was a wooden coffin prepared and john bosch was asked to help lift the body of abdu'l-bahá mm. into the coffin and john bosch held abdu'l-bahá's feet and put them mm. in the coffin then an outer comforter was laid over and covered and then the coffin covered and at 9 a.m. on Tuesday, November 29th the doors of Abdu'l-Bahá's house opened 10,000 people are surrounding the house 10,000 people or more in other words, we're not exaggerating when we say 10,000 mm. people and John Bosch and others hoist the coffin and John Bosch now has Abdu'l-Bahá on his right oh my God. and carries Abdu'l-Bahá down the steps and up Mount Carmel. Now, we also know that people fought to carry the coffin. So it, there were not just like nine pallbearers. There were hundreds mm. of pallbearers. All those 10,000 people fought to be to get their hands on the coffin and, and participate in bearing mm. Abdu'l-Bahá to the top of Mount Carmel. At the top of Mount Carmel, his, his coffin was placed on a table. The coffin lid did not fit properly. Oh, no. And uh, Bahia Kanum was aware of this because she actually selected... The, the site, she decided that Abdu'l-Bahá would be buried in one of the vaults of the Shrine of the Bab, and she instructed uh, uh, Luftallah Hakim, who was a 35-year-old living in Haifa at the time to help Abdu'l-Bahá translate for pilgrims. She instructed him that after this funeral is over, you stay by that coffin after it's interred into the tomb, you stay by the coffin, you know, stand over the tomb until we can the next day secure the coffin. So that the coffin is placed on a table and nine speakers, nine dignitaries, you know, statesmen, none of them were Baha'is. They all spoke about Abdu'l-Bahá. And then his coffin was lowered way deep into that tomb. I, I mean, very deep into that tomb. Um, and then... Uh, Hakim stayed by it the, until it could be secured. 
it's important to note that Shogifendi was not there, mm. you know, because he had difficulty obtaining a passport to return. And so he was not present at it. And, uh, you know, I, we all wonder at that. It's so difficult to, there are many, many things that have been written about that, which I, I won't go into now. But it is nice to think, though, that it was Bahia Kanum who, whose hand guided the entire funeral of Abdu'l-Bahá. But, you know, one last thing in case we run out of time that I want to mention about... Uh, about uh, oh, we got time. Whole, These are great stories. About this, yeah, about this whole um, passing is that... Uh, so John Bosch gets to the top of Mount Carmel. He's described the whole scene about, you know, making his way up. And then in his description, he turns and looks out across the bay. And it's a perfectly clear day. Now, in the days leading up to the passing of Abdu'l-Bahá, it was rainy because it's the rainy season in uh, uh, October and November. But also it is just wonderful to note that on the night that Abdu'l-Bahá passed away, it was the night of the waning moon. In other words, the moon is all dark. Hmm. Now we know that in the writings of Baha'u'llah. When he, when Baha'u'llah writes about Abdu'l-Bahá as the perfect exemplar, he describes, we also know that Abdu'l-Bahá is the moon to the shining sun of the revelation of Baha'u'llah. Right. And we know that the moon itself, the moon that's in our own constellation, is a dead rock. It has no inherent light of its own. It gets all of its light by reflecting the light of the sun. Hmm. And so in the moon, we have a visual understanding of who Abdu'l-Bahá is as the perfect exemplar of Baha'u'lláh's teachings. And when when he, he passed away, the moon had set. Or well, the the book I, I wrote is called "When the Moon Set Over Haifa" I, because I didn't want to call it "When the Mo- When the Moon Waned Over Haifa." It sounds like it's whining or something. Yeah. But the but it was the night of the waning moon, and on the day of his funeral, the next day, it was the new moon. Hmm. So you know, in everything we have we have these signs, these spiritual signs, and in this new moon we have. Really, the the unfoldment now of his will and testament, even though it hadn't been read on Tuesday, the 29th, mm. it was done. I mean, his will yeah. now is his will now that he's passed. It's, it's now unfolding. There's a letter written on behalf of Shoghi Effendi where I, the person was asking all about the administrative order and so on. And at the end of the letter... It says, the contents of the will of the master are far too much for the present generation to comprehend. Hmm. It needs at least a century. Wow. Of actual working Hmm. before the treasures of wisdom hidden in it can be revealed. Oh, my goodness. We're standing at that doorway. Wow. It's been it's a century. It's been a century. Wow. The world order 
of Baha'u'llah has unfolded for a hundred years. Local spiritual assemblies have been established, which are important because it's the way we organize ourselves. You know, remember, we don't involve ourselves in partisan politics, but we are interested in governance. We are mm-hmm. an organized religion, not a disorganized one. <laughs> and the spiritual assembly can help to guide the, the, the efforts of the community. We mm-hmm. have the establishment of the, of the national spiritual assemblies throughout the world, the establishment of the Universal House of Justice. The Universal House of Justice has been, been in establishment for 58 years. I don't know if you want to say how old you are, Rain. But I'm I'm going 37. To be, I'm gonna, okay. I'm going to be 60. So my lifetime is the is for me a gauge of how long mm. that House of Justice has been mm. in in practice. Now, the first message that the House of Justice sent out to the Baha'i world when it was elected in 1963, at the end of it, at the very end of the message, they say something that relates to this other thing I just said about how it takes a century for the will and testament to be at work in the world, for its mysteries to be revealed. Okay, at the end of this message from the House of Justice, remember, it's its first message. They get elected in, in April sure. of 1963. In, at the end of April in 1963, they send out their first message to the Baha'i world. But they say this very interesting line at the very end. And they say, now that the attention of the public is becoming more and more drawn to the cause of God, the friends must brace themselves and prepare their institutions to sustain the gaze of the world, the gaze of the world, that the, the whole, it's like that eye in, in a, you know, what's that movie that we all love so much? The books that I read, uh, uh, Lord of the Rings, you know, the, the, <laughs> the eye of Sauron looking around. <laughs> the gaze, yeah. the, the, that's humanity. <laughs> Who's going to, we've got the ring and now, <laughs> mm-hmm. anyway, so, so in January, well, no, in November of this year, there is a gathering to commemorate the passing of Abdu'l-Bahá. And the House of Justice said in 2018 that that gathering would be a gathering of the elected members of institutions of the faith. Elected members would be members of national spiritual assemblies, members of regional Baha'i councils, mm. would be the elected members. And in January, they said, this was in a message they sent in 2018, they said this, so we've known for a couple years that this is going to happen. In January, for the commemoration of the reading of the Master's will, which, of course, we're remembering, okay, it's been 100 years of its mysteries unfolding, and the House of Justice said the gaze of the world is now going to look at its institutions, is a gathering of the appointed members of institutions, so that would be members of the Council Counselors, Auxiliary Board. But we also know that there are other names for those people. So the elected are called the rulers. Hmm. And the appointed are, are called the learned. We hmm. have a system of governance in the Baha'i faith that is made up of rulers and learned. The rulers hmm. are elected, the learned are the appointed. Hmm. So now we have... I mean, just in my head, I'm combining this 
knowledge that the house, I mean, written on behalf of the guardian, there's there's a letter written that said that it'll, you know, the contents of the will are far too much of the, for the present generation. It'll take a century for it, it to it to be in, in working, for its mysteries to be revealed. The House of Justice, its first message says that the gaze of the world will be eventually on our institutions. Here we are, standing at the threshold of a hundred years wow. of institution building, mm. the formative age of the faith, mm. the, in, the building of institutions. So this is commemorating the hundredth anniversary of the formative age of the faith yeah. in 1921. Well, what, what does that mean? Mm. It means that we are, in my my view or my study, that we are seeing now the emergence of our institutions beginning to show their maturity, the rulers and the learned, mm. and now are the faith of Baha'u'llah coming to full fruition. Yeah, yeah. I have, I have a couple of questions. One is, the shrine of Abdul Baha is being worked on. I'm not. Is it is it supposed to be done by the end of this year? Is you that know, the idea, or we don't yeah, know? You know when? Well, because it, you know, we remember in 2018, the House of Justice said that there'd be these two great gatherings. This one coming up in November, and the one in January. And then they announced in in uh, 2019 that the the time has come to. Uh, move the remains of the of Abdul Baha whose remains were only temporarily in the shrine of the bab okay to a halfway point between the shrine of the bab and the shrine of Baha'u'llah. but when it was announced that Abdul Baha would be moved and the shrine would be built i thought oh they're definitely going to have this ready by 2021 so they could still happen. We're still, what, um, it's April, May, June, July, August, September, October, November. We're seven months away. Yeah, happen. and they don't, they don't have to finish the entire superstructure in order to, to move the body. But I was wondering if you had any thoughts about that. What an incredible event, like the likes of which no one has seen in 100 or 50 or 100 years, like the, the transferal of Abdul Baha's body from the Shrine of the Bab, to his own shrine. Right. And remember, the architect said that the theme of his shrine would be that it would be on the pathway from the Shrine of the Bab to, yeah. to the Shrine of Baha'u'llah because of that prayer of Abdu'l-Baha that said, let me be as dust in the pathway of thy loved ones. Mm. So now the Shrine of Abdu'l-Baha is in the pathway hmm. that the pilgrims take from the Shrine of the Bab to the Shrine of Baha'u'llah and back. Now, remember I mentioned earlier that Abdu'l-Baha had this vision for this ark, this Bay of Haifa. And hmm. one of the ways, it, it, there's this long explanation that he gives of, of it. And he, at the, right at the end, he says, at night, the great city will be lighted by electricity. And the entire harbor from Akka to Haifa will be one path of illumination. Hmm. Powerful searchlights will be placed on both sides of Mount Carmel. Hmm. And then it says, and Mount Carmel itself will be lighted from top to bottom and hmm. submerged in a sea of light. Hmm. So how appropriate that Abdu'l-Bahá will be, he's in the middle of that vision hmm. yet. 
Mm. One thing to re, uh, that uh, you know, just to think about in the passing of Abdul Baha, just to m- move on from this, is is that a lot of us forget that Abdul Baha was married, and his wife mourned his death. And at the end of this book, I have an epilogue chapter that talks about Munareh Kanum. Hmm. They were married when she was 26 and he was 29. And, uh, Which is kind of old for those days. Yes, yes. She was selected by Baha'u'llah. Um, she had been married before. Her story is very interesting. And before her first marriage was consummated, her husband said, I, can't, I, I cannot approach her. She's too holy. And then he died. Ho. Oh. And then she remained single for nine years. And then mm. Baha'u'llah called her to Akka. And she and Abdu'l-Bahá were married in the prison city of Akka. Now, when Abdu'l-Bahá died, she wrote so many beautiful things that expre- that give us an understanding and a, really like, well, duh, yeah, he had a wife and they had a marriage. And um, where she said, should I describe my grief fully? I would need 70 reams of paper and seas of blood would pour <laughs> from my eyes. And another place she says, I am caught in the talons of the eagle of sorrow. Wow. And then there's another last one I'll tell you where she she um, prays to God and she asks God to raise the bright moon of Abdu'l-Bahá over the city of Haifa. Mm. And then asks that all of Abdu'l-Bahá's promises will come true. Mm. So there is some time spent in this book on Munareh Kanum, and then, of course, on the greatest holy leaf, Bahia Kanum, and yeah. her, her st- station, yeah. which is unrivaled by any uh, woman in, in religious history. It's interesting to note that when Abdu'l-Bahá died, remember, so the sun has set, the moon has set, the world is in utter darkness, and now you have this faith of Baha'u'llah in the hands of Shoghi Effendi. Shoghi Effendi retreats to Switzerland to, really, according to Leroy Iowas, Leroy Iowas says to conquer himself so that he can lead the faith. Mm-hmm. That's how Leroy Iowas describes Shoghi Effendi's retreat. And he left the faith in the hands of Bahia Kanu. Mm-hmm. Now, never in the history of a world religion has a woman been at its helm, at its greatest hour of darkness, mm. than in the Baha'i faith. Mm. That is a very important point. Mm. At its most vulnerable stage, the faith is put by Shoghi Effendi into the hands of a woman. Mm. Very, very important that we tell people that, that we think about what that means Mm. and contemplate its significance. Yeah. Uh, When is your book coming out, by the way, and which publisher? Okay. Next month. It is, I think, important to say that this book is being published by, essentially by our National Spiritual Assembly of the Baha'is of the United States. Mm. 
Okay. Because it's being published by the United States Publishing Trust. I say that because it means that it went through review. Mm-hmm. So it, it goes through a very formal review, a tough one, I'll say, and where it requires that I prove that it has been researched appropriately. Hmm. And then it is given to this team who I maybe I should put them on your list. I think these are the most interesting people I've I've come to know in the last couple of years is the team at the publishing trust, hmm. Nat Yogachandra, Bahaj Taherzadeh, and Christopher Martin. They hmm. they are the they they edit the book with the author and they are it's uncanny their their knowledge and their good sense and their 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 regard for service and and their whole attitude is about service to the cause and that anything published by the publishing trust the main goal is to disseminate the word of god mm-hmm. so this book is is in that category mm-hmm. fantastic fantastic so my other question for you is you talked about the significance of, of the will and testament of Abdu'l-Bahá, and you made a couple references about the Western Baha'is being there at its mm-hmm. reading, at its unveiling. What can you tell us about that sacred seminal moment? So the public reading took place on January 7th, and it took place in... So anyone who's been on pilgrimage to Haifa, you've been in the house of Abdu'l-Bahá. So you go through those yeah. beautiful front doors. And by the way, it, I have a I, I got some help from a wonderful professor of art history named uh, Dr. Sharin Fozi. She helped me describe architecturally the house of Abdu'l-Bahá. And um, anyway, so hey, Sharin, thank you. Um, so big ups. Yep. <laughs> you you enter these doors of the house of Abdu'l-Bahá and you're in this large foyer, this large room. That is the room where the reading of the will took place. It's also the room where the first election of the House of Justice took place in 1963. Oh, wow. How neat is that? That's neato. That the place where the will and testament was read, where where Abdu'l-Bahá explains the election of the House of Justice in his will and testament, and the election of the House of Justice takes place in the House of Abdu'l-Bahá. That's just perfect. So there were, uh, the room was crowded with dozens and dozens of people. There were people who arrived from Egypt, people arrived from neighboring, other neighboring countries to be present at the reading of the will. Mm. And the will was read by two different people in turn. Portions of the will are written in Persian and portions are written in Arabic. And so they were read in those portions. Anyone who reads this book will see that John Bosch gives a an, a, a minute by minute account. Oh wow! Of the reading, at, at, by the minute where he says, "Okay, at ten thirty six, this is what was said," and so on. So, luckily, I ha- you know we have in the U.S. Baha'i Archives all of these papers, and I just basically typed them up and put them in a book. <laughs> so, mm. I mean, it's really a, a, the treasures found that I found in the U.S. Baha'i Archives. So remember, the public reading is different than the, there was a private family reading of the will with uh, members of the family 
who uh, male members of the family who were all present at the reading. Shoghi Effendi was not present at that. So when mm-hmm. it w- mm-hmm. although he was read the will, he was not present at the family reading, nor was he present. He wasn't present at the reading, which I think is um, classy. Um, I yeah, so he must have heard word. that he's getting appointed and he's like, I don't want to kind of be there and have mm-hmm. people pat me on the back mm-hmm. or have it be awkward for other people. Or, yeah. Yes. As Ruhia yeah. Kanum said, he was the inheritor of the burdens of Abdu'l-Bahá. And he knew it. Mm. That's a lot of burdens. So he was truly our, our priceless pearl. As she said, mm. that's why mm. we want, you know, Millie Collins, American believer who really was the, Shoghi Fendi called her the great benefactress of the cause. She, you know, paid for so many things. And of course the Collins gates that are enter, yeah. the entrance to the Shrine of Baha'u'llah are named for her in honor of, of her financial contributions. She had no children and she was called to the Holy Land um, to assist Shoghi Fendi. And she herself said that she treated him as though he were her precious child. Mm-hmm. And and you read about how she loved him. And, and it characterizes, at least for me, how we we think of Shoghi Effendi. We just want to protect him from any harm mm-hmm. because he had to deal with so much o- opposition mm-hmm. from every, essentially everyone in his family. Except for in the end, you know, Bahia Kanum, Monere Kanum, uh, but the great generality of members of his own family didn't accept him as guardian of the cause. My, I asked my dad about that. My, my dad is a wonderful uh, self-taught scholar. And he said, I said, why do you think that that is, that every member of, of Shoghi Fendi's family, basically almost everybody op- opposed? And he said, it is to prove that not that that the covenant of Baha'u'llah is so impregnable mm. that it can even withstand members of the family of Baha'u'llah opposing it, wow. and it can still stand firm. Mm. It can't. It can't be broken. Mm. And that it's bigger than family, I suppose. It's bigger than blood. At a time when mm-hmm. clannishness, family, blood was so strong in the world, it still is strong, but, mm-hmm. you know, in Middle Eastern cultures at that time, you know, blood is thicker than water. It's, mm-hmm. you know, so the covenant of God is even stronger than that. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. One question I sometimes ask my guests, uh, and I think it's an important one to share, Um what is your biggest spiritual struggle in your life right now? Um, well, you know, uh, I love that question because I think that it really gets at the root of, of why we are part of this cause, why we joined it. And I think that the, for me, it's knowing Baha'u'llah promises us that everyone in the future will abide by these principles. And if we accept Baha'u'llah, then we accept that. That, in fact, his words are, when the victory arriveth, all men will embrace this cause. In other words, everyone will accept racial harmony, 
the uh, you know all all of these great teachings. Mm. And so the great spiritual struggle for me, and I'm sure for many Baha'is, is that we know that it will come, but it it may not come in our lifetime. But our efforts are contributing mm. to it, mm-hmm. and so there there is a degree of uh, what I think what we call faith, and faith is about. Um, offering something selflessly because you believe it'll contribute to some greater good beyond ourselves. So that that's a deep spiritual struggle because you're not going to see the fruition of something. But I think it was Abdu'l-Bahá who said that that the thing things that unfold gradually, he was talking about the development of a flower or a tree, things that unfold gradually have permanence. And things that happen quickly do not have permanence. Mm. So this great spiritual struggle is to endure the gradual unfoldment of <laughs> all of our dreams. So we know that what, what, what happened when, you know, a world that wanted harmony, uh, what is the, the crowning goal of the Baha'i cause is the unification of all the, sp- the peoples of the world into one universal family. Mm. And, and then, well, you know what happened when we got that. We What's lived that? Happily, we lived happily ever after. So it's coming. Angelina, I have found these stories to be profoundly moving, fascinating, uplifting. Uh, I'd never heard any of them before. And I'm just, I'm awed. And I just can't thank you enough for sharing these. And for listeners at home or wherever you are, there's two wonderful books the new one coming out, When the Moon Set Over Haifa. I'm sure it has many more stories than this. Mm-hmm. And your previous book about John David Bosch in the vanguard of, what is it? Angels, martyrs, <laughs> heroes, saints, yeah, sure. scholars, all, all those the learned, well, the, the rulers. Comes, the, the title comes from, uh, you know, that, that, that that's the group we want to be in. It's, it's a quotation from The Guardian. Ah, we in the be, vanguard of... We want to be with in that group. In that with, vanguard. All the, the, yeah. all the things you just said, angels, martyrs, heroes, saints. We, we want to be in that group. Right. That's what we strive for. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm in the vanguard of podcasters, and I thank you for your time. <laughs> and you're doing a great job of it. Well, I'll, I'll say. you know, we do what we can. I have a nice <laughs> microphone. <laughs> Thank you again so much for your time. And Baha'i Blogcasters, thanks for tuning in. See you in a couple weeks. Thanks for listening to Baha'i Blogcast. Hope you enjoyed the episode and the conversation. Check out more fun Baha'i stuff on Baha'iblog.net. Thank you so much, and good night.